You're listening to episode three of the Architecture and Anthropocene podcast, brought to you by Triennale Milano, Italy's foremost institution for design and contemporary culture, with me, David Pleasant. Each episode, we'll be bringing you some of the thoughts and insights of architects, designers, urbanists, and a sound artist that have all passed through the Triennale's doors here in Milan. With a career spanning five decades, becoming a pioneer in the development of electronic music and then going on to meticulously record the ecosystems of the world, Bernie Krauser stands in his own category. Author, bioacoustician, speaker, natural sound artist, it is almost impossible to define this man. But it's perhaps for his outstanding archive of soundscapes that Krauser deserves our attention the most. Shockingly, more than 50% of the habitats he has recorded have now disappeared. It's hard to imagine a more relevant person at this point in time than Krauser. Here at the Triennale, Bernie Krauser's collected recordings majestically take shape in the form of the Great Animal Orchestra, which was commissioned by the Fondation Cartier in Paris. I spoke to the man himself about this extraordinary creation and a life's work in sound. Firstly, how would you describe yourself and uh, your career? I kind of struggled to sum it up when, when I did an intro. I thought maybe something like The Ears of the World is quite, quite an appropriate um, title, but how, how would you say it yourself? Well, that's stretching the point a little, but I, I, <laughs> I just consider myself a, a sound sculpture. I record sound in the natural world and transform it into different kinds of media and different kinds of expression. Uh, sometimes it's science, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's uh, theater, sometimes the, the sounds are for film. So it all depends on the ways in which either I want to express it or my clients have asked me to um, record the material originally. You've coined many a term in your field over the decades, from geophony to biophony to uh, anthropophony. Good. You got it. <laughs> um, I mean, they sound as splendid as, as, as the kind of ecosystems that, that, that they refer to. Right. Maybe in, in kind of uh, simple terms, could you explain some of those complexities? And, and do you feel that, that they explain the natural world? You know, as in our culture, we're mostly visual. And we have no language for sound other than the ways in which we express sound in music. And most of that is classical music. So there's a whole vocabulary for sound, but it's very, very limited in terms of uh, what we understand of the acoustic world. I don't see very well, so my whole world is informed by what I hear. And at some point, uh, I read a book by a Canadian composer and naturalist, Murray Schaefer, who wrote Tuning of the World. And in Tuning of the World, he uses the expression soundscape. It's a 1977 book, and it's the first time I'd heard the expression. And he defines it as all the sound that reaches our human ears from whatever source. And, and I got to think about that, and I said, yeah, that's really important to establish a language of hearing. So in the course of my work as a bioacoustician or a soundscape ecologist, which means I record sounds of the natural world, 
whether it comes from marine ter or terrestrial habitats. In the course of that work, I wanted to be able to describe sound more accurately, so I started with the sources of sound. And for me, there are three of them. The first and original source of sound, which came about four and a half billion years ago when the Earth was formed, is the geophony, or the natural sounds that occur from movement of the Earth, or the effects of wind in the trees, water in a stream, waves at the ocean shore, that kind of thing. So there's always a si there's never pure silence. There's rarely pure silence in the natural world. Silence means no sound. It's very difficult to find places like that. Maybe a very deep cave without any water in it. There are some canyons in the American Southwest that if you go far enough, uh, you'll find pretty much an anechoic experience, which means no sound. Have you gone searching for those kinds yes, of places? Yes, I have. Well. I have, because there, there are some thought that we can get absolute silence in the natural world, and really it's very, very difficult. You, you almost can't do that. And anyway, we wouldn't survive long enough in that kind of environment because it would be uh, a total abstraction uh, from what we're used to and what we need to hear. So there's that. So that's the geophony, geo meaning earth and phone from the Greek meaning sound, so the sounds of, of natural sounds of the earth. The second, which happened maybe 550 million years ago, was the introduction of living organisms with the range of morphs that occurred off the coast of Newfoundland. And uh, these living organisms, as every other living organism does, produce a sound. So my objective, and this we call the biophony, bio-life and phone sound, sounds of living organisms. And every living organism from, well, although virus isn't a living organism quite, but everything from viruses to large whales produce sound. And they produce some kind of sound that we can record and, uh, and actually begin to understand. And by the biophony, I mean the collective sound that's produced by all organisms in a given habitat, whether marine or terrestrial, at a certain point in time. So that's the biophony. And the third thing that I introduced was the anthropophony. Anthropo means human, and phone, again, sounds. So all the sounds we humans create. And there are two classes, uh, two really subclasses of sound that we humans create. The first is uh, controlled sound, like music, theater, language. And the other is chaotic or incoherent sound, which we refer to as noise. It's uh, stuff that has almost no information in it. It's, it, it, it doesn't convey anything to us except there's something out there, you know, that's interrupting our train of thought or our, our discussion with somebody else. Uh, you know, it, it interferes and it has no information. So that's anthropophony. And the other thing that I've introduced to the field is the idea that in a healthy habitat, you'll see... When you look at a graphic illustration of sound, which is called a spectrogram, when you look at those graphic mm -hmm. illustrations, you'll see that all of the organisms that vocalize find acoustic bandwidth in which to vocalize. It's like switching from one television station to the next so that they have clear bandwidth without interference in it or changing radio stations. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, same idea. 
So the, this is what I call the acoustic niche hypothesis. And I've discovered that in healthy habitats, which is shown right here at the museum, in these healthy habitats, these frequency niches or temporal niches, because sometimes uh, a bird will stop and then another bird will come in a minute later filling that same niche. But that's a temporal expression of that. Well, I, what I found was is this is a way to describe healthy habitats by recording and looking at these spectrograms and seeing what they reveal. Do you feel that, that that's what you've achieved by this point? You, you've got this fabulous collection of sounds. Is that not deciphering something of, of that? Are we not partly there, thanks to your work? The collection that I have, which began in 1968, so it's 51 years now, represents a unique collection in soundscape ecology in that I've been recording whole habitats, not single species individually, which is the way most collections of natural sound are managed. Like, for instance, Cornell University or British Library of Wildlife Sound. These people have gone around for 100 years now recording birds and mammals and insects and frogs out of context and storing them one by one in these libraries, which is important because we've got to know what the sounds are and we've got to be able to identify them. Almost like pinning a beetle in a, in a case or something yeah, like that. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Well, from my perspective, from my music career and experience as a professional musician, I was listening to things as whole orchestrations. And so when I went out to hear natural soundscapes, I couldn't stand pulling these individual critters out of the context of where they live vocally. And uh, it seemed to me that I was just destroying that world by doing that and compromising it and compromising the information that was inherent in that whole expression. It's like an orchestra. It's like, it's like trying to listen to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony by abstracting the sound of a single violin player out of the context of the orchestra and hearing just that one part. Wonderful. You can't get it. So I went out there, and from 1968 on, I was sneaking, because I was working with, a, with a, uh, an institution that was recording sounds individually, I was sneaking these little recordings on the side and actually collecting large amounts of, of data, which I have in my library now. What's interesting about that is not only that I established a new model for recording these sounds, but also that over 50% of my library now comes from habitats that no longer exist. It seems kind of the world, you know, finally grasping the, the urgency of the situation with regards which, to... <laughs> which world are you talking about? Good, good point, because, I mean, I, certainly political leaders don't seem to be grasping it, but maybe recently people are talking about extinction and uh, extinction rebellion, or there's a Fridays for the Future movement, uh, school children uh, protesting, striking from, from school. So, so people are really calling for action right now, but it seems like, you know, you, you had that foresight 50 years ago. You, you seem to grasp the urgency of it. Does it feel a little bit frustrating that, that it's only now <laughs> that people are, are really listening and it, it's taken 50% of, of what you've recorded to, to not exist for people to listen? You know, uh, I've never really thought about that. It, it, yes, it is frustrating. But if you start something 
that you really love and you really and it makes you feel good and it makes you feel good to be out there doing that kind of work then you really can't think about how frustrated you are about people not paying attention to your work it, it's it's one of the things that that comes or doesn't come in your life and you can't get too crazy about it um for me i've always been just happy to do it, to do what i do and as long as i could find a way to support that addiction i was perfectly content i'm 80 years old now and the work that i'm doing is getting some kind of recognition what's odd about that to me is that in my own home the us we get no recognition for this and on a personal level you experience the effects of 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 climate change and on, on in a very dramatic way very recently yes we had a uh my wife Catherine and I live in northern california about 80 kilometers north of san francisco and in the 2017 october fires we got completely wiped out we lost everything our house all of my journals 50 years of journals uh slides our cats i mean everything was gone and uh, you know in a way we're just starting over again at least from the material perspective and it's a very odd place to be at this point in our lives but we're very fortunate we still have you know we we have each other and we have enough resources to be able to manage that you you touched on it there that the sort of the notion of the ephemeral and how in a way there's something movingly sort of cyclical about the fact that you've lost these material physical possessions but there's really that your life's work is the ephemeral the sound and that was largely preserved via the collections that you've made what's interesting about that is 6 months before the fire mostly because of the political situation in the US which is so anti-science uh, a lot of my colleagues at NASA and uh, EPA were getting all of their data offshore stored in a different place because of the threats of having their data compromised and i thought to myself that it's probably a good idea to do with my archive as well because uh, a lot of my material was government funded and i had no idea how things were going to play out uh, in the us politically fortunately i made a backup copy a complete backup copy of my work and got it offshore to the Fondation Cartier in Paris and uh they have stored my work and when the fire happened i had five backups one of which was in paris one of which was in a bank vault and three others which were in the house were burnt so i had the backups and luckily they were in paris and very luckily they, they for were, us and they're saved i lost all the analog tapes the original recorders i lost the wire recorder that was built by in 1899 by vladimir polson the first magnetic electromagnetic recorder wow i had a version of that i had all kinds of really interesting gear but you know it's speaking of ephemeral and speaking of existential <laughs> it's really it's gone now Yeah. So next <laughs> next <laughs> exactly yeah. uh, and just briefly talking of that kind of ephemeral how how it's kind of visualized and and made physical and and the the space here that that as you mentioned was commissioned by the Fondation Cartier 
how was it that experience of of uh, transforming something ephemeral into something physical and visual and something that you can experience in that way? Did you find that quite interesting? It was a bit out of your your field in a way. Actually, what's been happening for me at this point in my life is I've been trying to figure out a way to get the data transformed in such a way that it could reach large audiences, some format that would work with that in mind. And the folks at the Fondation Cartier had a vision of how this sound should play out. And they came to me, and we worked together over a period of time to figure out not only what kind of material to use, but also how to formulate it so that people would have a graphic image of the sound as well, where it was sound-led, so it, it, which turns, things, turns the idea on its head anyway, because most media are not sound-led where they have a visual component. It's visually led like a film, and, and then you the follow su- suit. And so then the soundtrack. The musician as, yeah. yeah. Then the soundtrack is created and the music and the rest of it. So we did it the opposite way around. We created the soundtrack first, and then we created the visual to match so that it supports what you're listening to. Bernie Krause, thank you very much. That was really fascinating. Pleasure, Thank David. you. Thank you. That was author, bioacoustician, and natural sound artist Bernie Krauser talking to me, David Pleasant, for the Architecture and Anthropocene podcast brought to you by Triennale Milano. Make sure to tune in to our next episode where I'll be speaking to world renowned Japanese architect Shigeru Ban. You can download this and every episode of Architecture and Anthropocene by going to triennale.org. Thanks for listening and goodbye.